following audio is from a sermon series entitled Practicing the Way of Jesus, a study on the Sermon on the Mount. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you're just joining us, we have, uh, for the last, I don't know, five or six weeks or so, we've began uh, a new sermon series uh, looking at maybe the most famous discourse of all time where Jesus takes his followers, he'd been going around the, the Sea of Galilee here, and he's been talking about the kingdom. He's announced the arrival of the kingdom of heaven and telling people what it looks like and then even demonstrating through signs and miracles what this kingdom of heaven is like. And, and what he's doing, he, he's making this invitation to the people uh, who are listening you can get in on this. Like this kingdom of heaven is, is at hand and you can actually get in on this. And he's showing us here in, in, this, in this Sermon on the Mount what it looks like to practice the way of Jesus. That's why we call it practicing the way of Jesus. To, to follow in step with Jesus as we walk, as we're kingdom people walking um, through this world until the kingdom of heaven gives way in its fullness. Now, this Sermon on the Mount is basically a manifesto. It's like this is what kingdom life is like. This is what it looks like to be a kingdom person and sort of displaced in this temporary kingdom of the earth and one day it'll give way to this new kingdom or the kingdom of, of heaven. And so Jesus, as he goes on, as we get deeper into the Sermon on the Mount, he's telling us what it's like, but here we're at the very beginning. You know what, and I just realized, guys, I got the wrong sermon right now, which would have made for a very interesting, you're like, I would have heard this before, okay. All of what I said is still true. Shifting gears, all right. I was like, that's not right. He's telling us, as we move into the Sermon on the Mount, what the kingdom of God is like, but here at the beginning here, we, we, we find the Beatitudes, these statements that starts with, blessed are those who, blessed are the, and, and Jesus is saying, these are the people who are invited into the kingdom of heaven. These are the people who can get in on all of the glorious promises that Jesus is offering, and so these statements, these Beatitudes, which, which Beatitude, or uh, beatitude comes from the Latin word blessed, which is why we see blessed so much. Um, it, it's telling us the kind of people who are finding their way, and that's, it's not just in the sense of, you know, uh, of I'm blessed, hashtag blessed, like I've gotten something and now I have a blessing, but, but this blessedness is actually a way of flourishing, a way of being in the world that actually maximizes you as a human being. Your human flourishing is maximized. And so this is what Jesus is saying. These people who are like this will enter into this flourishing life. And and what we see as we go through these beatitudes is that the kingdom of heaven is shockingly contrasted to the kingdom of this world. I've quoted it a couple times already, but but the, the the, the narrative of this world is blessed are those who take what they want. Blessed are those who get on top. Blessed are those who are successful. And Jesus is saying actually quite the opposite. It's upside down. 
Because the kingdom of heaven isn't for the powerful, it isn't for the rich exclusively, it's not for those who domineer or who are carefree, who have all of their life sorted out or who are on the top tier of society. Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. And we've been sorting through those last three in the past few weeks. And it's one thing that when we sort of break these off like we have and done one beatitude a week, we can start to separate them and isolate them and think that we're speaking of three different kinds of people or as we go, like eight or nine different types of people. But really what the beatitudes are presenting to us are one kind of people who share all of these traits it's like the, the kingdom people are those who are poor in spirit. The kingdom people are those who are mourning and are meek. And so when we do this, when we isolate each beatitude from the other, we might miss out on this natural progression that Jesus is getting at here because it kind of moves in a sequence. When, when we see our spiritual poorness, we can say, yes, I'm poor in spirit. I've got nothing to offer God. Like I literally, I'm a setback to God. I got nothing to offer. When we see that, there's a sense where that drives us into a place of mourning. Like things aren't right. I'm not supposed to be the way that I am. And when we see ourselves for what we are, we have this sense of mourning and we might move into this place of being, of meekness, knowing that if I were able to assert my own will, right, if I were able to just muster up whatever I got, it's not gonna amount to much. And so we go from poor in spirit to mourning to meek. In fact, this is, if that's the end of this progression, Christians would be the most oppressed people in the world, right? Like, oh, a bunch of humdingers, you know, like they're always sad and moping around and they just can't really figure life out, right? But, but that's not where this ends. In fact, the first three uh, of the Beatitudes drives us into the fourth Beatitude, which is this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That's, that's the verse that we're really honing in on today. And, and Daniel Doriani, he's a commentator on this, he says this, when Jesus blesses those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he declares the spiritual consequence of the first three Beatitudes. If we know our sin and spiritual poverty, if we mourn over it and live meekly because of it, we will hunger and thirst for righteousness. That is, we will seek it, yearn for it, and ask God to help us attain it. See, what he's telling us is that if we see ourselves as these things, as poor in spirit, as meek, as those who mourn, those who are hungering, it's going to lead us to reach out beyond ourselves and find what we need most to survive. Not just survive, but to thrive, to enter into flourishing. And honestly, guys, this is what church is about. And I think that there's this perception among Christians is it's like we get self-righteous in the fact that I've got my life figured out. But really, church is about people who have come to the end of themselves and said, I got, I got nothing. And we're reaching out, we're hungering for, we're longing for something that we don't have in ourselves. Like, I'm not working out in myself. I need Jesus. And this is really the essence of what it means to hunger and thirst, right? Like, like physically speaking, if we're hungry, if we're thirsty, our bodies are telling us, I need something from outside myself that I can't muster up from within, right? Have you been able to produce a sandwich in your own efforts, right? Like just, uh, sandwich. You can't do it. 
Right? You can't unwill yourself to be hungry or thirsty. It means that you need something outside of yourself to survive, to grow, to thrive. There's this void inside of us, a, a, an empty space that must be filled. Now, many of you know we, we've got three boys um, in the Schmidt household, and you can imagine that the refrain, I'm hungry and I'm thirsty, is a very popular one, right? I, I think that the Schmidt household is the, the household of 10 meals a day and 100 water bottles. I swear, we've got 100 water bottles in our house, always drinking, always eating, always wants a snack, right? Always, always, always. It's like the kids have a black hole for a belly. No matter what you crank into it, they always want more. I know I got parents with me here. You're quiet today. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Gosh. Amen. Right? And here's the thing. It gets even worse at bedtime, Right? Like, that's when the intensity of hunger and thirst really ramps up. Like, I don't know how many cheese sticks our kids have eaten in bed. It's so bizarre. I don't know why. There's this sense of, of a dramatic hunger and thirst that, gets, that we see in our kids. Now, most of us as adults, we're, we're well-fed. Like, most of us have, have a little extra cushion, and we tend to eat because the clock tells me it's time to eat instead of my actual belly telling me I'm hungry or, or whatever, I'm thirsty, right? We, we listen to the clock, not our bellies. And, and, and so there's a sense where as we don't get as hungry, like we don't experience the real pangs of hunger or, or, or the real uh, longing for water because we just have so much stuff accessible to us. Now, praise God for that, right? That, Thank God for his provisions. But because of that reality, this metaphor that Jesus provides here of hungering and thirsting doesn't hit as hard as it would have for this first century audience that Jesus has accumulated all of these people up on the hillside. And, and, and we see this throughout the Gospels where Jesus gets up on a hillside and starts teaching, and he teaches for a long time. If you think for, I preach for a long time, Jesus would have gone on for a long time. And people were captivated. And so many times this has happened where Jesus actually had to provide a meal for people. That's where you see some of these miracles, the fish and the loaves, right? They, these people knew what hunger was. They didn't have the convenience of a supermarket or all, all these down the street, they had to go get, go fish, go to the market, and hope, fingers crossed, that there was something to eat. Or even, you know, like, you turn on your faucet, and you got clean water that pours out, they got to go to the well. That's like a three-hour ordeal for them. And so these people on the mountainside know what it's like to hunger. They know this real sense of, of I've got these pangs, I've got, I've got a, a longing for something outside myself. And so, so when Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is for the hungry and the thirsty, People are like, oh, I think he's talking about me, right? There's, there's a sort of zero depth entry here for people in the kingdom of God. Like the only thing that's required to get in is to experience a need for that, that to have the reality of this vacuum, this hole in your soul that must be fed. But, but Jesus isn't talking about a, a common hunger or thirst that we might have for food or, or water. Jesus is talking about a longing of the soul, he says, it's not just a generic hunger or thirst. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, what is that? What is, what is righteousness? Now, one of the, the, the habits we get into as church people is use churchy words without actually, we have some sort of vague idea about what it means, but not actually, we can't really hone in and pinpoint, you know, all righteousness means, well, righteousness, right? That's kind of how, how it goes some of these times. So what does it mean? And, and, and really, it's very important for us to, to come to grips with, like, what, what does it mean? Because the kingdom of heaven, multiple times in the Sermon on the Mount, I think five times, three times in the 
two or three times in the Beatitudes, Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, as a righteous kingdom. It's a defining trait. So when we talk about righteousness, generically speaking, what we're talking about is a sense of uprightness, a sense of, uh, of moral excellence, that there's this, this uh, it's the very best of virtue, so there's goodness, perfection, nobility, highly esteemed. So when we talk about righteousness, it's like there's this, it's almost synonymous with holiness. There's this virtue, there's this beauty, there's this perfection of this. And we see in, in, throughout the scriptures that God is described as righteous. He's righteousness, but, but he also acts righteously in all that he does. Psalm 115 tells us this, that Jesus in all of his ways, all of his ways are righteous. He's praiseworthy in everything that he does. Deuteronomy 32, his works are perfect. His ways are just. He is without Injustice, And so everything that God does, everything about God is righteous. And so when Jesus says to us, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, what he's doing is pointing out the absence of our own righteousness. He's not, because you, if you got your, if you're full, if your belly's full, you're not hungry. And so Jesus says, those who are hungering and thirsting, those who know their need are going to be satisfied. He's pointing to our lack of righteousness in and of ourselves. And there's really two ways we can think about this, this lack of righteousness. First of all, we can think of it in the sense of, of a personal sense, like in a specific to me sense. And then we can talk about it in, in a general, more cosmological, okay? So like big picture view. So there's a big picture, lack of righteousness. There's a small picture, lack of righteousness. And so here's what this looks like. This, this cosmological view, this, this, this general over all creation sense where we lack righteousness or, or, or the reality is we just live in an unrighteous world. Can we agree on that? This is an unrighteous world we live in. And it's not that God is failing to rule righteously. He's, he's ruling all things righteously, but creation in our, our sinful bent pushes against God's righteous rule and insists on doing things our own way, right? Trade righteousness for unrighteousness. Now, I don't have to take a lot of time to convince you of this, right? All I have to do is point to the social and racial injustices that are going on in our country, and our world, point to the, the fact that there are babies being aborted, aborted. there's sexual, uh, sex trafficking happening, there's the de decay of, of the nuclear family that's going on, drug abuse, um, this hyper-sexualized culture where we see all kinds of greed and selfish pursuits where people are angry and hateful and vengeful and on and on and on and on unrighteousness. Now when we see the world for what it is, like, because you could try to pull over some rosy colored lenses, ah, oh, it's not so bad, it, you know, we're trying our best. But at the end of the day, this is, this is not how things ought to be. This is not what God had in mind when he created everything and said this is good. It, it's fallen a long way from there. And so when we see how bad things are, when we see the unrighteousness of this world that we live in, and we experience the injustices or, or, the, or the difficulties and pangs and, and, and just general miserableness of this unrighteous world, it makes us long for something better. Now this is why politics have such a pull. Because the promise of politics is we're gonna make a better world. 
and, and it's a good pursuit. Like, as Christians, we ought to want to have a better world. But, but when we detach politics and, and we detach society from Jesus, we don't end up with a better world. It's just a, a different kind of badness. But that longing is still there, right? And that's why people buy in real hard to politics, right? They're, they're longing, it's a good desire. They're longing for something better. They're able to pinpoint the fallenness, the brokenness of this world. Now, we can ask, why is this world like this? Like, why is the world messed up so badly? Why are we in the position that we are? And this question has been circ- circulated for decades, centuries, thousands of years. In the 1900s, the London Times put out this question, is like, why is the world how it is? I just can't help but think, like Michael Scott, when he looks at Toby Flunderson, says, why are you the way that you are? You know, like we look at the world, it's like, why is this like this? Why is this the way it is? Now, th- this newspaper's put out this question and asked for some of the best um, politicians, philosophizers, um, religious people to answer this question. Why is the world broken? Now, you, you can imagine the, the sort of responses that flooded in. I'm sure a lot of paragraphs written to t- try to explain why this is, but I, one of the most compelling responses came from uh, G.K. Chesterton, who, who would, in all, in all view, right, you, you make an assessment of this guy, he would have been considered a good man, right? A good guy. He's a good guy. He takes the opportunity to answer this question, why is the world as bad as it is? And he says this two-word response, or, or why is the world, I forget how it's phrased. You know what I'm saying here. Why is the world so bad? Like, why is the world the way that it is? He says, I'm the reason why. He says, I am. Now, he, he's not saying that he himself is the root cause of all of the dysfunction of the world. But he has this realization that within him there's something deeply flawed about him. He's pointing us to the personal aspect of this unrighteousness. There's something profoundly flawed, there's something warped in me that unlike God, us as human beings, as person, individual persons, we don't ooze this good, right, and perfect things that God oozes out in himself. We ooze out the opposite. In fact, this is why Paul in Romans chapter three says that no one is righteous. No one does what is good. That, and if this is the reality, okay, if no one is righteous, if, if everybody is in this state of unrighteousness and we see the kingdom of heaven is a, a, a righteous kingdom, a place where God's righteous rule and reign is in effect at all times, then that means that we are incompatible as is with the kingdom of heaven. That if you were to drop unrighteous people into the perfect, righteous kingdom of God, we would ruin it. Actually, we would have a terrible time there. We would dislike it immensely. See, we are incompatible with this kingdom of heaven. And, and I, this is the point where people start to squirm a little bit because it feels like we're getting the, 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 the nuts are being, cr- uh, well, that's it, little bit. The screws are being tightened here. Oh gosh, this is on the internet now. (laughs) This is where we start to squirm, guys. And I'm kicking myself because maybe this humor gave us an out. 
But when we see, when we, when we come to this realization, right, that, that I am unright, like, why is the world the way that it is? It's because of me. We, we start to squirm a little bit. Our reflex is to get defensive. Our, our reflex is to say, oh, I'm really not that bad. Like, I know that I've messed up. I've done some things that definitely are unrighteousness. I've thought some things that aren't righteous or good or right at all. But we put those things out of our peripheral vision and we point to all of the good things that we've done. Yeah, I'm not that bad, but I've done, I've done this. Look at this. Look at, look at what, don't look at this. Look at this. And this is the default mode of our religious hearts. This is the default mode of people who are steeped in moralism. We think, oh, I just gotta do better. I gotta try harder. I've gotta put in some effort so I can heap up some more good things so then people won't be distracted by the unrighteous things that I've done. And when you do this, like if you live this way, if you think like, I just gotta do it, I gotta do it, I can, I can, I'm capable of mustering something up, what happens is you become smug. Right, like there's this persona of the, of the you know, crotchety old lady, church lady, you know. She's self-righteous, she's smug, she's self-assured, or a guy, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, or not even an old person, but just like, you're just proud because, well, I've done something right. And when you have this type of person, they turn out to be not very approachable at all, right? Because they, they start to see themselves as higher up than, like that they're a tier above everybody else. Because this is why, they don't see the problem as themselves. They say the problem's other people, right? This world's bad because they're bad. But this is the opposite for a Christian. Like G.K. Chesterton says, he says, the problem is me. It's not them, like sure, they got their own issues. There's a sense where, yeah, the problem is them, but it's not just them. It's not just an out there problem. It's an in here problem. And this is where Jesus steps in and he meets the problems with solutions, real solutions. See, Jesus steps in and he says, yes, you are unrighteous. There's there's not a, a good bone in your body. And he doesn't say, you know, you sort it out yourself. Now, Jesus says, I see your unrighteousness, and I'm going to trade you. I'm going to give you my righteousness. Because here's, here's where Jesus stands apart from us. He is the one who could always do or always did what is good, right, and perfect. We don't have that sort of capability. Jesus always did what was righteous, and he sees unrighteous people. He says, you know what? I see where that's going to lead you. I see where that's going to make you end up. I'm going to stand in your place. And so on the cross, Jesus says, I'm going to take all of your unrighteousness upon myself. And it's gonna be crucified. It's gonna be, be put on the cross and killed with me in exchange. I'm going to give you my righteousness. Now, so Christians have a, have a term to describe this because this isn't a righteousness that we have in ourselves. This is an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness that's, that comes from beyond ourselves and is applied to us. And so we see as Christians, the only way that I'm righteous is if Jesus gives me his righteousness, that his righteousness becomes mine. And my unrighteousness becomes his, and he pays for that for me. See, in doing this, Jesus makes us fit for the kingdom. There's no other way. This is the only way that unrighteous people can be fit for a righteous kingdom of heaven. And when you understand that, that that if you know that, okay, God looks at me, 
When he looks at me, he sees Christ and what he's done, his perfect righteousness. I can say, this is not my own righteousness, but Christ. And, and when you see that, it produces a deep humility. You realize that? Like, anything good about me isn't actually from me. It's from Jesus. This is what, what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. So my unrighteousness has been placed on Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So he's saying the life that I live now is Christ living through me. So listen, Christian, anything good that you do is a miracle. Every single thing. Everything good about us is a miracle. It is Jesus' righteousness working through us, being channeled through us. Man, what if, what kind of experience would people in our city have with Christians who knew that? Right? What, what, kind of, what kind of people would we be in our city? I think there would be a deep humility about us. There's this approachableness that actually points to the approachableness of Jesus. It's like, come ye weary sinners. Come to me. Right? I think that's going to be what, what turns our, our city to look to Jesus. Now when we see this righteousness that's made available to us, we don't, we don't have to jump through hoops to get it. You know, it's like, I, I don't, I don't become a little bit better of a person and then I, can, I'm, I qualify myself. It's like, I'm poor in spirit. I'm empty, I'm hungry. And then that's where the grace of Jesus meets us. This is the beauty of it. And, and when we see what Jesus does, well, what's our response then? It's to put our trust in him, our faith in him. This is, and so it's like, like with Abraham, who believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, so we too, that when we believe Jesus, when we see what Jesus has done for us on our behalf, we believe, we trust, we put our faith in him, and that is what, it's, it's not our faith itself, but it's our faith in the one. It's our faith in Jesus, who makes us righteous, who gives us his own righteousness. Now, what would lead Jesus to do such a thing? Why would Jesus, if he's a righteous God, man, why would he lay that down, become unrighteous for us? Why would he stand in our place? Well, here's the reason why. It was his righteousness. See, there, there, there's a sense where we compress the word righteousness to, to be a moral standard, right? And, and, and it is that, but it's not less than that. There's, there's more to it than that. The righteousness of God, the righteousness of Jesus is more than a moral standard, it's a power. We see this um, in Romans chapter one. Romans 1.16, I should have marked it, so I would have been, here it is. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to any, everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So here we see this connection between those who have faith in Jesus being called righteous, but here we see that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, and in the gospel it reveals the righteousness of God. So the righteousness of God is this power that, that fixes what is broken that fixes what's been corrupted and restores it. So the righteousness of God is what's making the broken things fixed, what's making the broken things put back together. And it fixes not just you and me, 
right? Not, not just me on an individual level or you on an individual level, but all things are being redeemed and fixed by Jesus. That is the righteousness of God at work. And so one day, when Jesus comes back, the kingdom of heaven will, will be the only kingdom that is standing. The kingdom of earth will give way and this new kingdom will come in its fullness that all things will be renewed. This personal, uh, uh, the personal brokenness, the, the cosmological brokenness will be broken and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied in the most absolute sense. And not just in this way where things are, are tweaked and, and you know, incrementally but drastic and radical transformation. This beautification of the whole cosmos happens where Jesus is setting right what is wrong. Now, this is exciting. Like, this is exciting. When you think of what Jesus is doing, what his plans, not only for for the whole cosmos, but think of the, the plans for the Quad Cities. What Jesus is planning to do. It's super exciting. It's captivating. But do you really long for it? Does this longing drive you into your Bible? Does this longing push you into missional community or Sunday gatherings where you can get a foretaste of this kingdom of heaven that's coming? Does it shoot you out on mission because you realize that there's a zero depth entry to the kingdom of heaven and so many more people in our city can get in on this? Does it absorb your thoughts, your imagination, your affections, right? Does this longing push you through life? On a good day sometimes, right? I think so. I mean, we don't want to sell ourselves too short. Because there's, there's a reason why you're here in this room. There's some sort of longing. And so, so we're, we're sensitive to that. But there are days, weeks, months, years sometimes where this hunger is dull, when it's unnoticeable. And so we gotta ask ourselves, what is it that stops us from longing for the kingdom of heaven? What stops us from longing for, hungering and thirsting for righteousness as, or Jesus as we ought to? And I think it boils down to these three things. I, th- I think we... We either reject our hunger, we repress our hunger, or we replace our hunger. How's that for alliteration? We, we reject, we repress, or we replace. Now, for some of us, we reject this hunger. We, we tend to be pri- proud people who say, I don't need nothing. I don't need you. I don't need God. I can handle this on my own. I'm fine. I'm, I'm sufficient in myself. Right? I don't feel hunger. Who are you? What? You must be weak if you feel hungry. And the reason for this is because we don't see ourselves rightly. Right? That's what it boils down to. We don't see ourselves rightly. We, we, we can't identify with the first three beatitudes. And the reason for this is because usually we're comparing ourselves to other people, or other screw-ups, people who are way worse than we are. We look at them, well, at least I'm not like that. It's basically this, this picture of, of the Pharisee and the tax collector who, who are in the synagogue, right? The, 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 tax co- or the Pharisee says, oh, I'm, I'm so glad I'm not like that sinner, right? That's what we do. I'm not that bad, so I, I can't be hungry like that. See, this is how religion, and not just religion, but moralism, self-sufficient moralism gets you to avoid your real need for Jesus. You reject it. Say, no thanks, I don't need it. Now, I think the other way is to repress, 
We try to ignore the hunger. So, so this hunger sort of boils up inside of us and we sense this, but we either, we like try to shove it back down. We downplay it. I, I was, uh, when I was trying to, I had some medical issues that I was trying to get figured out and I had a long season where I was taking some, um, some steroids, prednisone or whatever. And if you've been on steroids before, you know that stuff, first of all, you feel like you can conquer the world and secondly, you feel like you could eat everything in the world, all right? And so as you can imagine, uh, if you're on it for a long time, you tend to balloon up a little bit, all right? Well, I, I, I found this stuff. I don't know. It's a product that Arbon makes, but it, it basically is like a gut filler. It's like you put it in water, you mix it up, you drink it, and it's supposed to like repress your hungers, right? And, and sort of just like push it down. Where we sense, and this is what it's like, we sense my hunger, but I want to keep it under control. I don't want to be too hungry. And so we try to mitigate this hunger. I don't want to feel the pangs. And the reason behind this usually is that we're fearful that that longing won't be satisfied. And usually it ties back to your story somehow where you've been let down before, that you've had a longing, you've had a desire, and you looked someplace for it to be fulfilled, and it went unmet. It's like, that hurt. I don't want to try that again. Like, how do I know that Jesus is actually going to satisfy that? So fear keeps us from turning to Jesus. Now, the, the last one is to replace. And, and this kind of connects with this a little bit. It's where, the last one, it's where I have longings for flourishing. Like, I, I have a vision of this good life, that, that this blessed life, I, I have a vision for that, but I'm not sure if Jesus can actually deliver what I want. Right, and so we, we tend to look elsewhere. We, we go to politics, we go to our own uh, success in our careers, prosperity, pleasure, comfort. Right, we look all of these places to sort of uh, attain this sense of blessedness. Now, that, when we're doing this, we're getting this, the beatitude flipped around because in that sense, we're not hungering and thirsting for righteousness, we're hungering and thirsting for blessedness. And we associate this blessedness to, to a different narrative, right, and that the culture's pumping out. This hunger for righteousness gets replaced by something lesser. And we think, think of it like this, right? There, you can go to Golden Corral and just gorge yourself, right? Fill that gullet with whatever you want. But here's the real thing. That food's not that great. Like, there's a reason why you only have to pay $18 to eat literally anything you want. You eat there, you feel satisfied in a sense, like that your stomach is about to explode. Yeah, at, at the end of it, you realize, actually, I'm not really that satisfied because this hurts. And you contrast that experience to going to someplace like Steventon's out in LeClaire or, or, or down at uh, Duck City Bistro, someplace really, really nice. I mean, like, great food. Or maybe the portions aren't quite as big, but the, the quality of the food is exponentially better. And you eat that food, and your belly gets full. The flavors just satisfy your lungings, where it's like... I don't think I can eat anymore. I'm not necessarily gorged, but I'm full, yet I still want to eat more. Like, there, there's a sense of, of satisfied longing. Now, we tend to go about filling the spiritual hunger and take the golden corral approach. Just fill it up with whatever we can get our hands on, right? I'm going I'm to look to, uh, this, this relationship is going to satisfy me. Sex will satisfy me. This new job, a, a raise, is going to finally satisfy me. Go to a new city, a better city. 
That'll make me happy. That'll satisfy. That'll be the good life. Or, or find a new church or, or get a better education. Settle into the easy and slow life. Pray that my kids get better, right? All of these things, whatever it takes, that's finally what's going to satisfy me. And what's crazy is that some people might get it all, right? They might feel, feel full inside. But here's what C.S. Lewis says. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Is that you? Are are you finding that the, the things of this world are actually doing a pretty good job of satisfying you? I, if that's the case, like I'm happy for you, but I also know that that's gonna expire. Because what we know, like the book of Ecclesiastes is all about this, that nothing in this world can satisfy the cravings that we have. I mean, you don't, you don't believe me? Take it from guys who are at the top tier of, of every, or of their arena of, of, of success, okay? Think of, of Rockefeller, maybe one of the most wealthiest men who's ever li- lived in America. He, he asked, what's it gonna take for you to be satisfied? Like he's literally got the world at his fingertips. He says, just a little bit more money. Tom Brady, he had this interview uh, I saw a couple weeks ago with um, uh, Rob Gronkowski. They, you know, they asked, what's, what's your favorite Super Bowl ring? He's got six of them to choose from. He's literally maybe the best athlete to ever play the game of football. He's like, what's your favorite ring? The next one. He's not satisfied. Jim Carrey. He, he gets up and he's hosting the Golden Globes or something. He's announced as this two-time Glo- Glo- Golden Globe winner, and he makes this big dialogue about how he's just looking for that third one. Right? Then he'll finally be settled. Or Madonna interviews, like, it's gonna be the next song that rises to the cho- top of the charts. That's what's going to be what satisfies. These people, if, if these are the people who are at the top of their, li- at the top of their career fields, and they're not satisfied, how could I possibly be satisfied? See, nothing in this world can satisfy. Nothing in this world will fill us up or satisfy this insatiable hunger because the hunger that we have is actually for eternity itself. It's an infinite hunger. Billy Graham talked about the God-sized hole in your heart. Right, there's some truth to that. Because our hearts were made to, to desire God. Yet we try to fill it up with all kinds of things. Now I'll go back to C.S. Lewis because he, he maybe gives us the best treatment of this. This is a longer one, so follow me. It's on the screen here. He says this, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which the, the, uh, they are only a kind of, of copy or echo or mirage. 
I must keep alive in myself desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. See, our our longing for righteousness is a longing for God himself. Our our longing for righteousness is a longing for Jesus himself. That's what the psalmist says in Psalm 42. As the deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you, O living God. And when we're panting for him, Jesus doesn't taunt us with this this cold glass of water. Come and get it, come and get it, come and get it. He says, here you go. Take and drink. Fill your belly full. Come, eat and drink without price. See, Jesus says, if you're hungry, you will be satisfied. He's saying that people with spiritually empty bodies and spiritually dry mouths will be satisfied. Our hunger will drive us to reach beyond what this world has to offer and reach out and lay hold of Jesus as he comes near to us that we will seek first the kingdom of heaven and its righteousness and it will be added to you. See, Jesus is pointing to the reality that he is the only thing that can fill you up. He is the living water. He is the bread of life. And like the psalmist says in Psalm 23, my cup overflows. Ephesians chapter three, Paul talks about being filled with the fullness of God. Can you imagine that? The fullness of God filling you? That's unbelievable. And when we experience this satisfaction, it rolls out in phases. Like there's this immediate sense where we're satisfied, where, where I see because of Christ, I, Jesus, or God looks at me, the Father looks at me, and he's, he is satisfied, and because he is satisfied in me, I can be satisfied in him. There's this immediate satisfaction of, of knowing the gospel, of knowing what Jesus has done for me, where God embraces me, he blesses me, not, not pushes me or, away or curses me. See, that, that's, that's the satisfaction of being wrapped up in a parent's love. In, in their arms. That's immediately available to us. And then we see this progressive satisfaction that the more I feast on Jesus, the more my capacity expands for him. See, this is sort of paradoxical, okay? So like if, if I start out and my spiritual belly is this full and Jesus fills me up, it doesn't mean that this is all that Jesus has to offer me. He keeps going and going and my belly increases, increases, increases and Jesus fills it up. See, this progressive satisfaction, the more I feast on him, the more, the more I, I drink deeply of his grace, the more satisfied, the more I'm opened up to, to feel the satisfied. And as I experience that satisfaction, Jesus is actually changing me. He's, he's transforming me. John Piper says this. He says, deep and lasting satisfaction for our souls comes not from the delights of the world, nor from a merely religious or vertical relationship with God, though that is satisfying. Satisfaction comes from God to those whose passion in life is to know him in the struggle to be like him in the world. That the more we become like Christ, the more satisfied we become. And then there's a sense of eternal satisfaction that one day all things, everything that's broken in this world will be fixed that the kingdom of heaven will be here in its fullness and there will not be a single desire, a single longing happening because everything is right at our fingertips, contented, perfectly complete. 
Every longing we have will find its true satisfaction in Jesus. Now, this is, this is the reality. It's that reality of, of the satisfaction that brings us into this blessed life. The, this hunger for, for the righteousness of God that brings us into a life of flourishing. Our sorry state is met by the all-satisfying grace of Jesus. And what Jesus does, he brings us in. Psalm 92, verses 12, 13 says this. The righteous flourish, there's that word again. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. See, if you wanna have this flourishing, if you wanna, you wanna experience this good life, the blessed life, the only answer, the only, the only way that you can lay hold of that is you hunger and thirst for righteousness and you look to Jesus. And Jesus, today, as we come to the Lord's table, he, he offers himself to us freely. He says, I'll take your unrighteousness and you can have mine. There's not a better deal in the world, folks. This is what we have. This is what Jesus offers. Do you want, do you want that satisfaction? Do you, want, do you wanna be satisfied? Come to Jesus. Father, we thank you for your plan. We thank you for how you've worked throughout history, not only in creating us to have these desires, but the, the fact that these desires can be met and only can be met in you. Pray, God, that you would quicken our steps to run to you, to run to the fountain, to drink deeply, to eat and be satisfied. I pray as we take the Lord's Supper, God, we would be reminded that the, the body and the blood of Christ, we would remember that it, first of all, satisfies you, that, that we are counted as righteous through our faith in Jesus. But Lord, would, would you help this spiritual meal satisfy a deep spiritual hunger that we have? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.